Welcome to the Women's Wellness Psychiatry Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Anna Glazer, MD, a reproductive and integrative psychiatrist here to help you make sense of the complex world of women's mental health. If your goal is to improve your emotional well-being, find fulfillment, and feel like your best self, you're in the right place. Welcome, my listener friends. In this episode, we're talking about sleep. And hopefully you stay awake because this is a very exciting episode. Sleep is essential for all of us. It's also one of the most common complaints that my patients describe when they first come to clinic. And this episode is actually going to be in two parts because it's a very thorough topic and a very thorough conversation that I had with my guest today. My guest was Dr. Audrey Wells. She is an expert in the field, a sleep medicine physician, and she is board certified in sleep medicine, obesity medicine, and is a life coach focused on mindset. In the episode, we're going to discuss the basics of sleep, how it works, what happens when it doesn't, and how you could improve yours. We're also going to talk about sleep issues that are particular to women, such as those related to hormone changes. You don't want to miss this episode. All right. Thank you, Dr. Wells, so much for being with us here today. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. We're talking about such an important topic. Why don't we start by having you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and what you do? Thanks, Anna. I'm really happy to be here today. I am a sleep medicine physician. I've been in clinical practice for the past 15 years or so. And I treat all of the sleep diagnoses. Right now, there's about 90 plus sleep diagnoses described. Wow. But most of what I do is talk to folks who have sleep apnea or are wondering if they have sleep apnea. I see a lot of insomnia, restless leg syndrome, narcolepsy, et cetera. But I guess you would say the bread and butter of my practice is sleep apnea and insomnia. And oftentimes those two diagnoses coexist within the same person. Well, we'll definitely want to talk more about those. Let me ask you first, what got you interested in sleep medicine and the field of sleep medicine in general? Is it is it a relatively new field? It is a new field, actually. And because of that, there have been a lot of changes and I think things are still evolving. When I was in medical school, I don't remember getting any lectures or formal training on sleep. I actually discovered sleep medicine when I was doing my pulmonary fellowship. And the material just really resonated with me because growing up, I was quite sensitive to sleep disruption. So I knew that for me and, and my functioning, sleep was really important. And then as an adult, I've gone through different types of sleep problems that kind of keep me on my toes and actively managing those. So I just felt really connected with you know the field of sleep medicine. And I just loved it that it's a fundamental biological need. Everybody does it. And a lot of people have problems with it. So I felt like there was a lot of ways that I could help. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that piece that you just mentioned, where a lot of people struggle with sleep. I, I would say that that's definitely one of the top two or three primary concerns that patients come to see me for is issues with sleep. And so maybe we could start by just some basic orientation for those listening, sleep is something that we all do, but 
so little of us know much about it. And I think sometimes terms are kind of thrown around like, you know, deep sleep or dream sleep. So can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what healthy sleep looks like? Yeah, for sure. I think I'll start by saying one of the most common questions that I get about sleep in general is what is the most important stage of sleep? So I I think that it's in the public awareness that there are different stages. So broadly, you have non-REM sleep and REM sleep or dream sleep. REM stands for rapid eye movement. And those two sort of paint a picture in broad strokes about the different types of sleep. And then sort of some subcategories within non-REM sleep are non-REM one sleep, which is a very light sleep or transitional sleep. Non-REM two sleep is the most common type of sleep and is sort of an in-between in terms of how deeply one perceives sleeping. Non-REM three sleep is also called slow wave deep sleep. And that's where you get a lot of synchrony in your brain, neurons pairing together, which create these big, beautiful waves on an EEG tracing. <laughs> so all of those are non-REM three. And then with REM sleep, it's a little bit interesting because the pattern that I would see on an EEG for REM sleep is actually quite similar to wakefulness. And I think most people know with REM sleep is where you get most of your dreaming, not all of your dreaming, but those vivid dreams where you can sort of describe to someone the next day what you were dreaming about. So In terms of the most important type of sleep stage, unfortunately, there is no one stage that bubbles to the top. They're all actually important and they all serve specific functions. So I would say, you know, for healthy sleep, you need all of the sleep stages. And I would also highlight a couple of things that are just really important in terms of making sure that you are asleep when you want to and awake when you want to. One is getting enough sleep. So for the vast majority of adults, that's going to be between seven and eight hours of sleep. And then a regular sleep schedule. Um, So going to bed at about the same time every night and waking up at about the same time every morning. Yeah, and I think that just to kind of touch on some of the things that you mentioned, there's so many different directions we could go. You mentioned the, the dream sleep. And I wonder if you could tell us, I I definitely had folks mention to me, oh, you know, I don't dream or I don't remember my dreams. And then the opposite where some people mentioned to me, I'm really bothered by the very vivid dreams that I have. What do you make of those two cohorts of people? Yeah, the perception of dreams is not something that's entirely understood at this point. In other words, what is known is that some people tend to remember and report on their dreams while others don't have as much access to that. But I can reassure everybody who's listening that you do dream. In fact, dreaming is absolutely necessary for survival. And we know that because there's a very rare condition in which a person loses the ability to sleep and to dream, and it's actually fatal. It's called fatal familial insomnia. Extraordinarily rare. But in addition to that, 
experiments have been done in mice and rodents, selectively depriving them of dream sleep. And those animals don't survive either. So what is known is that dreaming is critical, but it's not quite clear why some people remember their dreams and some people don't. And in the case of having disturbing dreams, you know, that's definitely a, a thing and it can be really disconcerting to someone who's experiencing that. Dreaming is one way that the brain processes emotions mm-hmm. and also regulates emotions. So the dreaming is sort of a virtual reality platform, if you will. The brain is working out ways to manage the experiences of the day and to sort of sort them and even dampen heightened emotions. So if you have some awareness of that in when you wake up in the middle of the night or the next day as you recall your dreams, that can seem a bit disturbing. But the truth is your brain is probably functioning normally as it processes all of those emotions and all of that information. And there's certainly been quite a bit in psychiatry written about, you know, interpretation of dreams and and what they mean. And I've had some patients where I've recommended that they have a little notebook or journal by their bedside where they can kind of make notes once they wake up because these things don't last very long. The memories of our dreams very long so they can make notes and, and reflect on some of the emotions that come up more so than the actual content of the dreams. Yes, yes. And that can be very helpful, too, for rerouting dreams that have a recurring theme. Or some people actually have a repeating dream. And if that's disturbing to them, then you can actually deliberately sort of recreate that dream in a more benign way and practice that. Hmm. And you know, sort of retell that story so that the frequency of that dream goes down and it can even be eliminated. That's that's fascinating. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think dream interpretation is is also really interesting, but uh, so far I haven't come across anything with really reliable interpretations. It's I think it's more meaningful on an individual basis. You know, you sort of choose to believe what you want about your dreams. And, you know, hopefully one day we could even direct our dreams in a way, because it's certainly lovely when you wake up from a wonderful dream, like flying or (laughs) achieving something. Exactly. Yes. Well, so let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that come up with sleep, even beyond, you know, challenges with dreams. I have a lot of women who come to see me. So I work with a lot of women who are pregnant, postpartum, and those are definitely times when sleep is particularly disturbed. And so maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking about the sleep disturbances that are common in that window of time, pregnancy and postpartum. And then we could also troubleshoot a little bit for women ways to perhaps improve their sleep during that time. So could you share with us a little bit about some of the changes that happen with sleep in the context of pregnancy and postpartum? Yeah, sure. One thing I want to point out is that women have a lot of hormonal fluctuations during different stages. So, of course, there's the menses, there's pregnancy, and then there's the perimenopause and menopausal states later in life. 
And those are associated with hormones, progesterone and estrogen going up and down and, and in a cycle. And sleep is associated with hormones as well. So I'll name melatonin primarily, also growth hormone, cortisol, and the hormones leptin and ghrelin, which help to regulate hunger, satiety, and metabolism. So, you know, for some women, especially during times of hormonal change, sleep can be tricky. And both are kind of on this backdrop of hormonal regulation. During pregnancy, there's tons of changes going on, of course. And in addition to the hormones, you've also got the physical changes. So typically, you know, there's going to be sleep changes that happen in different trimesters. With the first trimester, a lot of times women will notice a sleep disturbance or insomnia that typically goes away with the second trimester, which is sort of a quiescent time. That second trimester is, for many women, considered the, mo the best sleep. Because then when you move into the third trimester, you've got these physical issues that start to interrupt sleep as you're kind of managing the growing baby and trying to find a position that's comfortable. Interestingly, a lot of women have problems with restless leg syndrome during pregnancy. And this is probably related to the demand on the woman's iron stores as her blood volume is ramped up to accommodate the growing baby. So you need more iron to put in those red blood cells. And it's known that uh, low ferritin levels in the brain can translate into restless leg syndrome. So oftentimes women will have some of those urges to move during sleep in their pregnancy. And it can be really difficult to tolerate. Fortunately, when the baby's born, that symptom usually goes away, but it may be a little indicator that she may suffer from restless leg syndrome later in life. So that may come up again, but for the pregnancy time, it can be really disturbing to sleep. Could you share with us, you mentioned a number of different hormones involved in sleep, melatonin, some of the hunger and satiety hormones. Could you share with us a little bit about sort of the, the relationship between those various hormones and sleep? And one of the other questions related to that that I often get from, from many of my patients is, do I need to get my hormones tested? And so how would that fit into this picture as well? I'll start by saying that I actually don't do a lot of hormone testing, and that's, I think, true for my colleagues as well. With melatonin, a lot of folks sort of turn to over-the-counter melatonin, hoping that it will help them to sleep. But I want everyone who's listening to know that your body actually makes melatonin naturally, and it is a timekeeper hormone in the body such that it's secreted in a very rhythmic way. It comes up at nighttime and peaks and then sort of goes down slowly over the course of the night as you're sleeping. So there's this is a, a very nice way that the body keeps track of the 24-hour day. And you can accentuate your own body's production of melatonin by managing your light exposure. So bright light in the evening actually inhibits the secretion of melatonin. And a big offender is electronic screens. So 
you know, looking at your phone at night, doing work on your laptop or watching a movie on your tablet device, all of these electronic screens, especially when they're so proximal to your eyes, are, are really giving the signal to your brain that it's time to be awake. And so melatonin is suppressed as a result. And that's so hard. I think that's something that so many of us in today's society spend time doing. You know, you'll get through your work day, you'll come home, you'll do all kinds of home things, and then you might pop back onto your laptop to finish your work. Or, you know, you might be reading or watching a movie or, you know, scrolling through social media on on your phone. And so, so many of us are having that exposure, that light exposure right before bed. I'm just as guilty as the next person, <laughs> let me tell you. I mean, I think that it's it's just something that needs attention. And in my experience, there's actually different sensitivities to that. Although sometimes I'm giving some side eye because not only can the light exposure prevent you from getting to sleep when you want to, you may perceive that you actually get to sleep quite well, but it can disrupt your sleep or make it choppy in the middle of the night. And so if sleep is a problem for you, then reducing that light exposure, especially at night and especially from those electronics, can really help improve your sleep quality. Now, I, I sometimes tell people, you know, keep up with your social media and do your screen time, but do it in the morning when you're, you're getting up to start your day. You know, get some, a dose of light exposure then, and that can help promote that alerting signal at a time when you want to be awake. Yes, yes. And you mentioned this this piece where I think sometimes, for example, someone might scroll in order to help them fall asleep or, you know, keep the TV on in order to help them fall asleep. But in the end, it's not as good quality sleep that they're getting. And so that kind of leads to this question of, I think sometimes we do know when we aren't sleeping well, but not always. And so how would someone recognize when their sleep is not as quality or as good as it ought to be? I think the number one way to figure that out is to look at how you feel during the day. And, you know, a good time to check in with yourself about that is kind of in the late morning, maybe 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. And assuming that you haven't pumped up with caffeine for the day, you know, ask yourself, do I feel alert? Do I feel focused and ready to go? Because most human beings will have a peak alertness time around that late morning hour. Sometimes people express to me some dismay that they wake up and they don't feel alert. But actually, that's not necessarily abnormal. When you first wake up in the morning, especially if you have a regular sleep schedule, and you're meeting your total sleep need, when you first wake up in the morning, your circadian rhythm is not fully ramped up yet. So that is not the great, greatest time to assess your sleep quality from the night before. You really want to wait at least an hour to get fully online before you say, oh, maybe I didn't sleep so well last night. Or maybe you did, and it just took some time for your circadian rhythm to ramp up. That's a really good point, because I do think that so many folks kind of wake up and think to themselves, oh, I don't have enough energy. I must not have slept well. Or the other time that I think comes up quite a bit is sort of that 
quote unquote afternoon slump. I'm sure you've you've had folks mention that. What do you make of that? This is another factor related to your circadian rhythm. It has nothing to do with what you had for lunch. So you can just take that out of the equation. The, the human circadian rhythm actually takes a very natural dip in the early afternoon for most people. Again, looking at maybe around one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in that time frame. And so it could just be related to that natural dip. Again, especially if you're getting enough sleep and on a regular sleep schedule. Now, night owls are a little different. So if your genetic tendency is more toward the night owl chronotype, then that slump may come a little bit later for you. And it's just something to be mindful of as you look at your productivity at work or look at your driving or your mood. Being aware of that time and trying to accommodate it the best you can can make your day just go a little bit easier. I think that's such an important point and, and something that we don't often recognize in today's society where the the expectation is to just go, go, go throughout the day and there's meetings and work, even during those slumps, at least in our culture, there's certainly other cultures that recognize that there's a time in the day to to rest. And but here in, in the US where we are, it's definitely not something that's recognized. So there's often quite a bit of work. And so I, I definitely have patients who are utilizing tools like caffeine to get them through that part of the day. You're so right. And I think it contributes to, to, to the busy brain that a lot of folks have when they put their head on the pillow at night. So if you have not taken time to rest or have white space for your brain in the day, then when you lay down at night, your brain and your monkey mind want to come out and play. And that all by itself can be frustrating and keep you from getting to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really good point. And you've mentioned a few different important tools so far in our conversation. You've mentioned consistency of bedtime. You've mentioned, you know, having a little bit of downtime for the brain. Share with us, you've mentioned certainly the electronics piece. Share with us some other tools or some other skills that could be really important to help people develop the best kind of sleep quality and and to just improve their sleep overall. I think that it's really helpful for people to take up a breathing practice if sleep is problematic for them. And there's a couple of techniques that are really simple that I walk patients through so that they can help themselves get to sleep or get back to sleep if they've had an awakening in the middle of the night. So one is just a variation on square breathing, which is where you want to take an inhale to a count of four, let's say, and then you hold that breath for a count of four. Then you exhale to a count of four. And then at the bottom of your exhale, hold again for a count of four. So that's a square breath. You might imagine that in your in your mind. And when you're breathing like that, you're engaging your parasympathetic nervous system or your rest and digest system to help calm your body. And you're also occupying your mind with this pattern, which can be really helpful to get it to slow down and invite sleep in a, in a more productive way. 
there's a variation on this that I like to do, especially as people are beginning. So if you inhale to a count of four, then hold for a count of four, then inhale again to a count of two, and then exhale to a count of six. That can feel a little bit better and get that that belly breathing where you're really pushing your belly out because your diaphragm is expanding. So this is a technique that can help sort of put the brakes on and slow to a stop so that you can get to sleep better. I love that. And whether it's square breathing or sometimes I refer to what you described as box breathing or a number of other breathing techniques, what I love so much about those is that there's things that you can absolutely fit in for 30 seconds or a minute throughout the day to really help activate that parasympathetic nervous system. Yes, drug-free, right? And side effect-free. Exactly. Yes. And so the term that I think is often used is sleep hygiene. And I think that's a little bit of what we've been talking about is how do you have good sleep hygiene? What does that mean? And what are some of the other aspects of good sleep hygiene? The idea is that you're engaging a hygiene practice in order to get the result that you want. So, you know, dental hygiene, I think, is is the analogy there where you are doing some maintenance activities to maintain your dental health. So sleep hygiene describes creating an environment and creating habits for yourself that you do regularly to maintain your sleep health. And what are some consequences of poor sleep? Ooh, I think just about any kind of mental disturbance you could think of could be a consequence of poor sleep. And you know this as a psychiatrist. There is no psychiatric diagnosis (laughs) that does not have a sleep disturbance as one of its manifestations. Absolutely. So, yeah. So when you think about poor sleep, you're looking at problems with mood, problems with emotional regulation, problems with memory and concentration, problems with attention. And these are a little bit nonspecific sometimes. So it's hard to kind of work back to sleep as the root cause, but I think that's always worth considering. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that so many of my patients come to see me when they have challenges with sleep as well as some kind of mental health concern, whether it's depression or anxiety or something else. And oftentimes it's one of those things where you could intervene at either point and the other gets better. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes you need to do a full court press too. (laughs) Yes. To kind of get everything under your umbrella. Yes, absolutely. And so we've talked today about certainly the just now the consequences of poor sleep, what is sleep, and how to develop good sleep hygiene. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode. As you know, my goal is to share with you the most helpful information that moves you towards emotional well-being. If you have suggestions or questions, I'd love to hear those. And I also always appreciate a rating that will help others find this valuable content. I'm looking forward to connecting with you again next week. Please note that while I am a clinical doctor, this podcast is not a substitute for nor should be taken as medical advice. No specific health advice is being given on this podcast and no physician-client relationship is created by you listening to this podcast. All information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only.